The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Primal Body, Primal Mind. Your host, Nora Gedgaudis, is here to take you on a fun-filled and informational journey through the mind and your body with a focus on neurofeedback and healthy nutrition and what it can do for you, your family, and friends. Now, here's your host, Nora Gedgaudis. Ooh, a good Wednesday morning to all of you at the top of the morning, and happy St. Patty's Day. And welcome to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. Your one-stop shop for that cutting-edge information about diet and health and your brain. I'm your host, Nora Gadgaudis, and I'm broadcasting to you today from beautiful Portland, Oregon, on this actually almost sunny spring day. It, you know, things here in Portland right now are actually blooming like mad right now. We've got cherry trees and roadies and camellias and daffodils and daphnes and mountain fires and crocuses and who knows what else. It's absolutely spectacular and intoxicating this time of year, and one gorgeous place to be right now. But enough about that. Well, everybody, um, on this absolutely beautiful day, I regret that I um, have to share with you all the sad news that on on Wednesday, March 3rd, a friend to me and to this show, Anna Wise, um, passed away from complications surrounding pneumonia after a long and difficult struggle that she had with MS. Uh, Anna was a guest on the show the last week of October this last year, and we spent the hour discussing the use of neurofeedback as a tool to enhance and explore spirituality, a topic not dissimilar, actually, to the one we're going to be discussing today. Anna devoted her entire life to matters of the spirit, uh, and also what was and what could be the best in all of us. Her departure from this dimension of existence is a real loss to all of us, and she will be deeply and sincerely missed. Now, with the permission, of course, of my guest today, also a dear friend and, and colleague of Anna's, uh, Dr. Julian Isaacs, I'd like to offer a special dedication of our discussion today to Anna's memory, uh, to, to her beautiful and important work. Uh, given the nature of our discussion today, it just sort of seems somehow appropriate to do so. Now, today we're going to be talking about and uh, accessing the subconscious mind, the brain's sort of nether regions and, and mystical states and how the science of brain training can be harnessed for accessing the deepest recesses of the human mind. As a neurofeedback specialist, um, I've encountered spontaneous experiences in clients during brain training sessions that resulted in personal epiphanies and richly symbolic experiences, uh, encounters during uh, altered states like alpha-theta training with, with loved ones that have passed and out-of-body type experiences and enhanced inner self-knowing uh, and even profound insights, all through no special design to really do that. Uh, these things just sort of spontaneously happen to come up 
uh, I've even worked with a few individuals who've had well-established reputations as being psychic, who felt that the process of brain training really enhanced their special abilities and helped clear their mental static that interfered with that extra sensory perceptiveness. Now, alpha theta work, something that we've spent time talking about on the show, is the means by which we quiet what we call the chattering monkey and uh, part of our minds and give room to the subconscious mind to air, express, and integrate itself sort of unfiltered by conscious interference. Now, experiences people have doing alpha-theta training can at times be profound. Often, too, the experience can be quite mundane. It just depends. But there are many approaches in this field that people have taken toward accessing the subconscious mind or specific states of consciousness, uh, enhanced meditation or even mystical states using brain training technology. One such expert in this realm is Dr. Julian Isaacs, our guest today. Now, Dr. Julian Isaacs earned his doctorate in psychology in 1984 from the University of Central England in Birmingham, England. From there, he moved to the Bay Area, where he was appointed as teaching faculty and director of the research laboratory in the School of Consciousness Studies at John F. Kennedy University. He worked there as a research consultant and also specialized in the development of alpha-theta brainwave training. In 1994, he took neurofeedback training from Siegfried and Sue Othmer and has been in private practice as a neurofeedback practitioner in Marin County, California, ever since. Julian has treated a wide range of neurological and psychiatric disorders successfully with neurofeedback. He conducted research into the use of neurofeedback to remediate ADHD in children with treatment provided in the school setting. He's acted as a consultant or supervisor for Ph.D. dissertation research projects investigating the use of neurofeedback for remedial and peak performance applications. I would like to welcome my friend and esteemed colleague, Dr. Julian Isaacs, to this show. <laughs> welcome, Julian. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm so pleased that you're able to be here today. Now, you know, you said you actually uh, taught a workshop or two uh, with Anna Wise, who I know was a dear friend of yours. Um, what was the nature of, of this workshop? Well, we actually participated in an eight-week intensive with Anna because Anna lived in uh, Marin County, so that uh, a colleague of mine, Patricia Fields, and myself, who, and we taught Alpha Theta training for the Osmos for quite a while, right. attended Anna's workshop, and I was very impressed with Anna's intuitive abilities and with her incredible ability to hold people in exotic states of consciousness. I remember one time sitting on a couch in her room where she was uh, working with us, and she would actually get us into Alpha Theta and be able to read our state so well that if we got too deep, she would ask us a question and we'd sort of grunt out an answer. And she was able to cruise us in that divide between sleep and waking without any equipment at all and She'd actually told me before that in England she'd worked as a medium sometimes, and that had really sharpened her psychic sensitivity that she used in the domain of brainwave training. Yeah, I never knew that about her. Yeah. That's that's really fascinating. Yeah, she had an extraordinary ability to um, talk people into the states that we often use technology to help uh, draw people into. She was... um, 
Yeah, I agree. She was sort of a singularly unique. Yeah, uh, she was, well, I think the Greens were aware of that because they talked of techniques which they called feed-forward, where you induce or induct a state in people. I'm very familiar with that because I became uh, a practitioner of Ericksonian uh, informal hypnotic techniques very early on when I was studying psychokinesis. And the use of feed-forward induction for, for helping people to get into uh, different states of consciousness is very helpful because then the feedback then certifies to them that they're there. Uh-huh. And it's a much smoother and easier process than allowing them to simply arrive there by chance or just by their own efforts. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, you spent many years in this kind of work. I mean, really exploring places in human consciousness that are often otherwise ignored you know, by, by much of the rest of the field and by academia. Um, what, what drew you to this whole realm of consciousness work and even your interest uh, uh, in parapsychology? Well, um, my first discipline, my first degree at university was in philosophy, and I was fascinated by the issue of consciousness. How could a physical object, which is what we are, be conscious. And that's really guided a lot of the work that I've done in my life. And I ran across parapsychology because, in a sense, parapsychological phenomena are the smoking gun that illustrate that our notions of the world are incomplete because we do not include those in the formal accounting of the universe, in the sense that physics doesn't yet have any model for how parapsychological events occur and the data from parapsychology has not been allowed to affect the uh, enterprise of physics in the sense that you could have um, exotic physics experiments uh, showing non-local effects to particles, which is predicted and, in fact, verified by quantum physics, and yet nobody's thought to actually get somebody to influence the outcomes of standard physics experiments, which is really what took me into the area of exploring parapsychology and, in particular, psychokinesis. Yeah, really, really, really interesting. Uh, you know, we're, we've also been attempting, I think, in, in measuring or attempting to measure parapsychology. You know, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, uh, perhaps a fourth, fifth, sixth-dimensional phenomenon that is really being attempted to be measured by, by three-dimensional instrumentation. <laughs> yes, this is really true. One of the enormously frustrating things about parapsychology is that most of the action takes place behind the scenes and you're ne- never able to track it. And this is why the model for researching uh, psychokinesis I had is to look at effects on conventional instrumentation because that's where it does show up in the 3D world. And I really take your point that most of the action is not in the 3D world and the way to investigate it, one fruitful way which hasn't really been followed, is to look at the effects on standard instrumentation, but in order to get that to happen, you have to have specially gifted people to actually produce those effects, and that's very tough to do. Right, right. I know uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz has done a lot of interesting work in this area, too, um, you know, with with actual money from NIH, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, which is a a whole other subject matter, but it's not like there isn't any good science to support the existence and the validity of this phenomena. But it's, it's, you know, I think the study of it, um, you know, as, as you well point out, is, is of necessity in its infancy because um, we're only, uh, you know, on, on the outskirts of, of uh, grasp of the physics that it takes, I think, to begin to comprehend it and uh, 
Yeah, the problem is that we don't have a viable theory of how it works so that we can't point to that theory and have people say, yeah, that's an interesting theory, let's test it. Right. So as a result, no matter how much empirical data is built up, the skeptics always say, well, you know, we can explain it by fraud or by a wrong methodology or whatever. But if there were a prima facie believable theory, then that would really contextualize it. Because if you look at the picture of the world as presented by quantum theory, it's really crazy. And yet, because of the, in the weave of the dance between the quantum theoretical structures and the actual empirical research, the physics research, because of that interchange between the two, everybody's co comfortable with these completely weird and bizarre ideas like dark matter, dark um, energy, and the sort of stuff that cosmology is looking at. Yeah, so um, oh, I'm, I'm reluctant to ask this question because we have about a minute before going to break, but um, I'm interested in the ways in which you maybe have um, perhaps explored the utilization of um, in fact, I've got a thing or two to say about this too, but uh, explored ways of utilizing the instrumentation that we use uh, in order to either enhance or, or clarify this uh, sort of ability. Oh, uh, what I was doing was looking at the effects of people on piezoelectric crystal targets that were uh -huh. being monitored and that was the mode in which I was attempting to measure these effects. Other people have used random number generators. Right. And there's a group now in, uh, uh, at a university in uh, South Carolina. Yes. Uh, who are attempting to replicate the research that I originally did in England. And oh, that, fascinating. Uh, with now 2010 technology instead of 1984 technology. So yeah, we might actually get somewhere better. with this yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, we need to take our first break, but when we come back, we're going to delve into this fascinating and sort of mysterious discussion. Uh, my name is Nora Gadgatis, and uh, joining us today is Dr. Julian Isaacs. You're listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, and we will be back in just a moment. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. NBC Science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgaudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgaudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. Want to learn more about neurofeedback? Want to find a trained clinician for yourself or for a loved one? 
or maybe you are a professional looking to offer this powerful, non-invasive technique to improve results for your toughest clients. At EEG Info, we are the leading provider of neurofeedback resources, videos, and training for the next generation of neurofeedback professionals. If you want to improve symptoms of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, this non-invasive approach is the answer you've been looking for. Neurofeedback is successful in helping people of all ages achieve a feeling of greater health and well-being. Visit us at eeginfo.com today to learn more about neurofeedback or to find a local clinician who can help you or someone you love. Unlock the full potential of your brain today. Visit eeginfo.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Well, welcome back to the show. Well, today we are having one fascinating discussion. And basically our topic is accessing the subconscious mind, the brain's nether regions and mystical states. And our esteemed guest is... Dr. Julian Isaacs, a um, uh, friend to this show. Um, you know, in the last segment, you sort of alluded quickly to, uh, you, you mentioned the Greens, Elmer and Alice Green, who were really kind of the early pioneers in, in the exploration uh, using brain technology of some of these nether regions and mystical states and paranormal phenomena and, and things that academia really at the time was nowhere near uh, ready to even begin to touch. Um, they were quite courageous, I think, in, in their efforts to do that. Now, maybe you can help uh, explain um, to our listeners a little bit about yeah, I'd be happy. who Elmer and Alice Green were. Yep. Um, well, El- Elmer still is, I think. I, I, think. I know Alice uh, passed away, unfortunately, from uh, Alzheimer's. Yes, they were real trailblazers because what they did was to actually start a study where they were looking at creativity uh, and they had a student population and what they would do is get them to relax and give them feedback for the production of theta brainwaves. And that was really the whole start of alpha-theta brainwave training. It had already been known for many years, actually from the 18th century onwards pretty well, that getting into the state between sleep and waking, you can have new ideas because it's the area of consciousness where the subconscious meets consciousness. And it's everybody goes through that state at least once a day when they go to sleep. That's right. called the hypnagogic state. But most people pass through it very quickly, so they don't necessarily take much notice of it. But what the Greens found, which was their magic uh, trick, was a way of sustaining that state so people didn't then crash into deep sleep and yet were not in full waking sleep, waking state. So as a result, people would cruise into this alpha-theta area. And why we call it alpha-theta is because when you close your eyes, you, we naturally produce alpha at the back of our head. That tends to spread forward as we get deeper and get more sleepy, and then it slows down, and then suddenly... Uh, theta arises, that's a slower brainwave 
more from the front of the head, and at that point, the theta enlarges, and the theta is allowing you, or it's signaling that there's contact with the unconscious mind. The person classically experiences hypnagogic imagery, and there are even artists' books full of hypnagogic imagery. There's a book called Hypnagogia. I forget the author now, but that's got these very bizarre, very interesting, dreamlike uh, images that are produced in this state. But what they found, which was so groundbreaking, was that some of the students reported what they termed integrative experiences, where something deep psychological was going on, where suddenly they were able to make a realization or they were able to let go something that had harmed them. And in retrospect, now we know that there is a very interesting and powerful uh, maneuver within the mind, within the brain, where if you, every time you access a memory and bring it fully into consciousness so you're there, almost in a sort of film set way, if you change the content of the memory, it then gets, the new version gets rewritten into memory. So memory is not static. We can rewrite it, and we can even rewrite it in ways that were not literally true at the time, which is truly amazing and bizarre, because normally we believe as rationalists that we can't do that. Right. And so what was happening was that people were experiencing traumatic events, but because they were in this strange, super comfortable super comfy state between sleep and waking, they didn't have the normal extreme anxiety or pain that that event would normally produce. And as a result, they were able to recode the memory and the actually incident loses its charge. And that's a huge discovery, which then they were teaching this technique to therapists. And uh, at that point, the guy who actually did the first formal study of Alpha Theta training uh, with people who are in trouble, uh, which was uh, Eugene, Eugene Penniston, yeah. attended their workshops, took it back to his VA administration hospital, took um, six uh, really recidivist, uh, relapsing uh, alcoholics, did alpha theta with them, and at the end of the study, eight out of the ten, actually it was ten subjects, eight out of the ten subjects totally transformed their lives, stopped drinking alcohol, became caregivers themselves and this blew everybody's brain and nobody could actually believe at the time right. nobody that, could wrap themselves around that. that fast or that powerfully yeah i'm not even i'm not even convinced they're 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 uh, still able to wrap themselves around peniston's findings and of course those you know some of that research has been redone too um but yes, uh, there have been quite a few replications of it there was a big study done in association with uh, between the Osmos and a, a, a group called Cry Help in yes. L.A., and that's a very interesting big N, relatively big N study. One of the problems of parapsychology, uh, not of parapsychology, well, of parapsychology as well as neurofeedback, is that there's not enough funding in the area so that it's very difficult to do studies involving large numbers of people because it's simply too costly to do that. Right. And so as a result, you get all of this really excellently uh, well-done small-scale studies which are then poo-pooed by skeptics if they want to poo-poo them on the basis of it, it being small numbers. Right, yeah. Alpha-theta work really um, became a, an extremely viable, I think, um, helpful tool for integrating complex unconscious material uh, with people. And I, you know, I know that 
you know, with, with Elmer Green's work, you know, he was, of course, I mean, he really probably will be eventually seen as one of the key scientific figures of the 20th century when, when, when it all washes out. But he was really fearless when it came to dealing with altered state phenomena, things that don't necessarily fit inside the neat box that academics like to see. You know, he, he was willing to take a look at the ghost in the machine. Oh, yes, because he actually founded the ISIM or ISIM Society, whose ambit was to specifically look at subtle energies. And yeah. that's a very important bridge into the world of parapsychology. And I'm very glad to see that that society is still very much thriving. Yeah. And Alpha Theta is now very much an accepted technology. And actually what's interesting is that it's probably accepted more in the rest of the world, and particularly in countries in South America who are using it for cocaine rehabilitation and all sorts of use for drugs uh, and also for people who'd been traumatized. Yeah. And they actually did some studies showing that you can help Vietnam vets who have PTSD. Right. So, of course, this is a technology that's appropriate for troops coming back from Iraq and uh, from Afghanistan and, and the Osmas are actually doing a welcome home program of neurofeedback training yes. for troops coming back in the country. And Alpha Theta is very interesting because it exhibits the interaction between the EEG and consciousness. And so you've got a real tie-in there in the same way that meditation shows a tie-in between EEG and consciousness. And then other applications of neurofeedback for shifts in consciousness and deep, profound characterological shifts would also be the uh, training discovered by Seaburn Fisher, where you actually uh, shift the functioning of what's called the prefrontal or the, the right orbitofrontal uh, lobe of the brain, which is the part of the brain, in a sense, that, that modulates the emotion that's produced in the limbic system by the amygdalas. And you can, if you can train that right orbital frontal lobe, you can actually really do some profound good stuff to kids with reactive attachment disorder, adults with attachment disorders or anxiety disorders. And Sieben's uh, leitmotif, her motto, is that most of psychotherapy is really about people learning how to modulate their emotions, how to be able to get their emotions within acceptable ranges where they, they don't control, their behavior is no longer controlled by their emotions and where their emotions are relatively okay and peaceful. And so training at that site, which is now famous under the name of FPO2, right. Stephen made that name up, is used a lot in the treatment of reactive attachment disorder. Yeah, and, and a lot of us, too, are, are, are tying in uh, temporal lobe placements with that particular placement, too. Yeah. I, I've seen some really, really wonderful uh, effects in combining FP, you know, FPO2 with, uh, with a site that we call T4, which is the right temporal cortex. Yes, exactly. And in fact, the Osmers move to focus upon the training of the temporal lobes is so important because the temporal lobes uh, lie from the outside inwards. They lie on the outside of the uh, limbic system in which the amygdala is placed, and the amygdala is the seat of our primary emotions, so that training the temporal lobes allows us to modulate the reactivity of the human brain, and that's really good for everybody. It makes people less irritable, less anxious, and, and uh, more easy to get on with, 
that they find the world smoother, and it regulates people's emotional state. And I agree with you. I actually had been doing some neurofeedback with FPO2 and T3, T4 simultaneously in order to get that kind of calming effect. And I agree with you that that and also FPO2 and T4 themselves really regulate people's emotions in a very positive way. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of amazing. I think we're able to get places with that that nothing else is able to touch, particularly, as you mentioned, you know, with the reactive attachment population, although that gets, it's getting a little bit away, <laughs> getting a little off topic. But um, it's interesting, too, that, you know, the temporal lobes are also in some ways a gateway to altered phenomena, for a lot of people, um, sometimes uh, people will experience bursts of activity in the temporal cortex that can trigger ecstatic experience and that sort of a thing. That's nothing that we're necessarily inducing doing neurofeedback, but we're just talking in general terms about I, the yes, brain. Yes, I, I want to address that one because I've had clients of mine where I've done this super low frequency training in the temporal lobes at T3 and T4. That, those sites, by the way, for our, our audience are just above the ears so it's just sort of half an inch above the ears or an inch above the ears in that kind of area and i've had some clients who when you took them really low actually one way of describing their state is that they dropped out of doing and 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 flowed into being so all of the normal busy work of the monkey mind stopped and they were able to actually experience a huge expansion of consciousness, yep. which was very wonderful for them, and they really enjoyed it. And it made a difference because right. they were able to experience the world as a safe place to be in. And we're just talking about conventional neurofeedback training, now, not even the woo-woo stuff. We're just talking about standard awake state training. Yes. Well, we're going to get to talking about this a lot more. We have to go to another break here, but we're talking here with Dr. Julian Isaacs, I am Nora Gaudis, and you are all listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. We will be back in just a moment. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. NBC science consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgaudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgaudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. Want to learn more about neurofeedback? Want to find a trained clinician for yourself or for a loved one? Or maybe you are a professional looking to offer this powerful, non-invasive technique to improve results for your toughest clients. At EEG Info, we are the leading provider of neurofeedback resources, videos, and training for the next generation of neurofeedback professionals. If you want to improve symptoms of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, this non-invasive approach is the answer you've been looking for. Neurofeedback is successful in helping people of all ages achieve a feeling of greater health and well-being. 
Visit us at eeginfo.com today to learn more about neurofeedback or to find a local clinician who can help you or someone you love. Unlock the full potential of your brain today. Visit eeginfo.com. The Interstate Sportsman Talk radio show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news, talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join host Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Welcome back to the show. We are having an absolutely fascinating discussion with Dr. Julian Isaacs about about the brain and its and the subconscious mind and the ways in which we can use brain technology to access both the subconscious mind and even mystical states. And, you know, there's so many ways of accessing altered states of consciousness and different levels of consciousness using brain training technology. And I know we have, I mean, I'm, a, I'm amazed sometimes at what you can accomplish just sort of doing standard awake state training, but then there's also more of what, uh, you know, Les Femi was doing with alpha training and then there's theta training, and then there's alpha-theta training, and then, you know, this sort of goes on and on. Um, I recall that Elmer Green always used to sort of see alpha training as sort of a stepping stone uh, to theta training, which is, you know, where he thought the treasure of self-discovery really, really, really laid. Um, but, uh, you know, we are able to uh, get at so much um, without even really intending to go there. That's the part that, that sort of blows me away. Well, I think it's the, uh, I think it's human physiology and what humans are that they're sort of built to have a natural proclivity for that. For example, there was a very interesting study done by the guys who wrote the book Why God Won't Go Away, in which they found a, a yogi, a young guy who was actual yogi practitioner, who could get to the point where he lost his body boundaries and merged with the rest of the world. And they found that the area of the brain in the right parietal area that maps our position in space became inactive during that experience. But for the person who has that experience, once they're adjusted to it, it gives them a profound sense of belonging and secure attachment to the world. And so... I think that the new stuff that's being dug out in the realm of attachment theory is fascinating because if you look at meditative procedures in the light of attachment theory, really what you're doing in a meditative state is to actually learn how to obtain secure attachment to the universe so that you can feel truly safe all the time. And a lot of the clients who I work with are people who've had very insecure and dangerous and possibly abusive childhoods And what that does to the brain is that if you're exposed to that early in life, it configures your brain to expect that the world is always going to be like that. So that the adults emerging from that process 
are people who feel permanently insecure for no particular reason. Right. And so therefore it requires a rejiggering of the brain to establish a, physi a neurophysiological basis for the feeling of safety in the world. And that's what some of the new stuff in neurofeedback is really directed towards doing. Right, that's exactly what we're doing when we're targeting the amygdala in some of these temporal uh, yes. you know, regions. You know, there, uh, you know, there are hundreds um, of styles of of meditation, and you know, they focus on a multitude of different things, which can mean a lot of different uh, types of brainwave activity. Actually, what's your experience in attempting? I don't know whether you've done much of this, attempting to enhance sort of meditative states using brain training. Well, that's very interesting because, I, first of all, I really agree with what you say in the sense that for the layperson, there's meditation or not meditation, whereas, in fact, when you look at the field, there's a whole bunch of different meditative, state, yes. meditative techniques which appear to give different states. And um, really, meditation at its base is just a process of directed attention either attention to experience, which is used in insight meditation, which is uh, what Buddha originally used to attain enlightenment. And he actually used a mixture of two different meditation techniques because he used that where you're watching your mind and you're simply neutrally observing all of the things where you're grasping, where you're attached, where you're scared, where you have fear, where you have aversion, or where you have greed or desire of different sorts. So you observe that, and the idea is if you observe it for long enough, and of course we now know that, that a full meditation course to enlightenment using just the human brain as technology in general is taking some like, something like 60,000 hours of meditation, which most of us are never going to do. I don't so, have that kind of time. If we were members of the banking community, we might have exactly. the time and the money to, be, to do that. But being yeah. working people, we can't do that. So, so what it is, we folk, yeah. my mission here is to attempt in the first place to analyze states of consciousness that, are, that clearly will be associated with different EEG profiles and then to attempt to help people to replicate that, those profiles in their meditation. Right, so, which takes what normally would take 15 or 20 years down into you know, days, weeks, or months at the outset. I, I don't think it's going to be days, and I don't think it's going to be months, but I think it could be a couple, a couple or three or maybe at most ten years instead of the huge amount of time required. So what I'm looking at is the other form of meditation that Buddha used, which never normally comes up in the literature. In other words, there's a lot of focus on his in, so-called insight meditation in the, what's called the Theravadian school of uh, Buddhism, which was the original one that Buddha founded before the Mahayana form of Buddhism, which is... Uh, uh, in a sense, a more non-dual form of meditation that was in India, and then finally the, the more exotic still forms of meditation that are used in Tibet and which are also uh, part of the Japanese Zen meditation tradition. So that's kind of sketched the territory a little bit. And what, it t what meditation is is the process of directed attention, and it can be to one's own experience, to looking at the monkey chatter and seeing, oh, my God, you know, here, here is possessiveness, here is this, here is that, and right. attempting to correct that. And then the other forms of meditation are meditation on outside world targets. For instance, yantras, which are symbolic visual representations of uh, g uh, forms, Buddhas, 
gods, goddesses, etc., etc. The idea being that they're focusing your mind on the quality that the image imparts. And then there's also active meditation such as yoga and uh, uh, martial arts and stuff like that. So really there's three sorts. There's insight meditation, concentrative meditation, and active meditation. And that's a fairly inclusive sort of descriptive set. Then the question is, would you see different brain waves in different states of meditation? And that's why I took the concentrative type of meditation, which is called jhana meditation, and we've done QEGs, that's quantitative EEGs, where you're doing brain mapping of specific states. Yes. So what we've done is to find a teacher of jhana meditation, Lee Brasington, who is able to, to control his state so well that he can signal to us when he's in a particular jhana state. And then what we do is review the record afterwards and, and parse out those sections of the record that we feel give the best uh, correlation with that state, i.e. he was truly in that state during this period of time. And then we analyze it, and what we do is to look at it statistically to see if they differ from each other and if they differ from the baseline, because we always take a baseline. Right. And the fascinating thing, uh, and this is a similar technique used by Richard Davidson with his uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist practitioners, that the Dalai Lama has, has really supported that research. What we find is that, yes, there are eight different jhana states which are preceded by a state called access concentration, and each one of these states, including access, has a unique signature. So it's kind of like the QEG brain mapper's paradise because here's this exotic okay. form of meditation with essentially nine identifiably different profiles, and then what we do is to create neurofeedback protocols to replicate the main features of those protocols. And, of course, we're in a very early stage of this work because we haven't done this with a number of other jhana meditation teachers, which is what we need to do, and look at jhana students who are capable of getting into these states. And the states are pretty exotic because they start from access where one is able to focus and concentrate. And then in jhana one, you have a very strong physical eruption of ecstatic bodily feelings and in jhana 2 you go into ecstatic happiness so all the ecstasy um, addicts are going to be really hot to trot on this one but the problem is <laughs> that getting there takes a lot of effort without neurofeedback and what we've found which is fascinating before I detail any of the other jhana states is that the preference of our meditators is really different from what you would have with a conventional neurofeedback setup. In conventional neurofeedback, you get positive feedback for when you're in the state. Right. But what the jhana folks would much prefer is a signal when they drop out of the state. Uh. And we were very gratified indeed with Lee to actually take, get him to stay in access concentration and to note that in access concentration, as soon as he started talking to himself, we got a signal. And as soon as his focus wasn't enough, we also got a signal. So that what we're doing is creating guidelines which are giving people little nudges when they drop out of the state rather than something that, that will include striving, which will encourage striving when they're in the state. And this is a very, very sort of counterintuitive in some ways approach, and yet it seems to work for these folks. 
That's really, really, uh, I mean, that's, that's incredibly interesting. I, you know, it's, it's clear that this, uh, type of research is really, uh, evolving. Um, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, like big time. I'm going to be extremely interested to hear how that all washes out. Well, we have to go to another break, I'm sorry to say, but uh, please, everybody, I hope you stick around. Uh, we're speaking today with Dr. Julian Isaacs and, of course, I'm Nora Gadgaudis, and you are listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio. We will be back in just a moment. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. NBC Science Consultant Dr. Mark Steinberg says every so often you encounter a gem among the dross competing for your attention. Such is the case with Primal Body, Primal Mind, written by Nora Gedgaudis. Primal Body, Primal Mind is a non-fictional excursion into the realm of biology, politics, and self-care that you will never get from formal academic education. It's a nutritional treasure map leading to optimal wellness the way nature intended, a jewel. Tom Hartman, acclaimed author, scholar, and national radio host, says, If you want to really know how your body and brain work, read this book. Go beyond the low-carb and paleo diet to discover the ultimate key to health, a better brain, weight loss, better mood, and a longer life. Primal Body, Primal Mind will show you how you can save more money eating incredibly well than you ever believed possible. You can order the life-changing book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, today. And sign up for Nora Gedgaudis' weekly blog update at www.primalbody-primalmind.com. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. Best. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're tuned in to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio with host Nora Gedgaudis. Got a question for Nora about today's show? The phone lines are open now at 1-866-472-5792. Toll free, 1-866-472-5792. Now back to our show. Here's Nora. Welcome back to the show. We're talking today with Dr. Julian Isaacs, and we're talking about the areas of the brain that are sort of dark and mysterious, and uh, uh, we're talking about the subconscious mind and the unconscious mind. Where do you draw the distinction, uh, Julian, between the subconscious mind and the unconscious mind? Well, I think that's a partially sort of uh, artificial distinction, but sure. I, th I, think the, I think the conventional construal of this is that the unconscious mind is truly unconscious, is never directly accessed, whereas the subconscious mind can be accessed actually experientially. And when, when we think about it, the, the un most of our neuro most of our processing is actually unconscious and we just take this for granted because for example we never think about how we walk or how we cycle or how we find tins of goods in the supermarket or look for vegetables or whatever and yet most of that is done totally unconsciously where we're aware of what we're doing 
but we're not directing every single move we make. We're, we're, we're built as a very highly hierarchical system with massive parallel processing so that most of that processing is out of consciousness, and that's good because we don't necessarily want it. And I saw a fabulous, fascinating TV program about autistic savants the other day on PBS. Yeah. And they were saying how the savants actually get access to the low-level detail coming through the sensory system. So you get that guy who was taken in a helicopter above various cities, London yes. uh, included, and came down and produced perfect replications, in, appropriately scaled and appropriately in perspective of what he saw. Extraordinary detail. Right. And what, what was really fascinating to me was that they then talked to a neurologist in San Francisco who was looking at individuals who'd got early uh, onset of dementia and found that the part of the brain that was dropping out of operation was the same part of the brain that wasn't seeming to work in autistics. And, of course, normal people, and this is something that most of us are going to have a shock when we actually really fully realize the implications of this, most of us do not live in the real world. Most of us live in the symbolic representation of the real world that we see. And it's only if you take something like LSD or some other drug that disables that highest level of representation that you realize, oh, I'm not really seeing the world in my normal state of consciousness for what it is. What I'm seeing is my quick brush stroke of what the world should be based on the cues I've taken in and the knowledge I have, which then creates this illusory world in which I live, which is not illusion in the sense that it doesn't exist, but where we've done a quick rough sketch of what's there. So we can't really see it. And what's fascinating about Temple Grandin's work, she's an autistic person who became a professor of animal husbandry who has these a very interesting um, jobs where she goes to animal handling facilities because they're asking her to debug their cattle pathways because the cattle are blocking and stopping at something because they're getting freaked out by what they see. And the humans can't see what the cattle see, but the autistic professor can see. And what, so what she reports is that there may be a light flickering in the distance. There may be a gleam off something. There might be water something somewhere where it's rippling. There may be a fan moving. And for a human, all of those are totally disregarded because they're irrelevant to our main purposeful activity. Whereas for an autistic person and for the cattle, they're in the real world, so they see these things as potential predators. Right. There's not a lot of compartmentalization going on. Everything's just sort of washing in at once. Well, Temple's produced a wonderful world, a word for this. She says that normals perform a process of abstractification, which is exactly what it is. In other words, we're living in this symbolic representation instead of the real world. We're living in the abstract formula, which allows us to be very highly functional, but we lose the detail. And one of the purposes of meditation is to undo that so we can get back to the world of raw fields and be truly in the real world. And the other implication that's so fascinating is that if I'm trying training autistic people with neurofeedback at the exact point that the fMRI work has shown that their brains are not really functioning, which happens to be just, in, just at the very tip, the very forward end of the left temporal area. And when you do that, what you're doing is 
you're instituting better functionality in the area of the brain that in some ways has the highest level of symbolic representation. And what's really interesting, and I've no idea whether this is totally crazy on my part and a superstitious attribution, I did this with a middle-aged man who'd been happily living his whole life, and he went into a, a, a midlife crisis because it was as if part of his brain woke up and he realized, oh my God, I haven't really been awake in my life at the highest level. I haven't achieved what I wanted to do. I haven't actually done what I really wanted to do. I've done something else and I've just got pulled down into the hurly-burly of everyday life and lost that level of consciousness above that where I'm truly self-aware of what my real purposes should be or what my aims will be, etc., etc., a heck of a thing to do to someone in their 70s. Yes. Well, he wasn't. <laughs> luckily, he's not in his 70s. But uh, it was. there were a number of other outside factors adding into that, I have to admit. So yeah. I don't want to attribute it all to neurofeedback, but I thought it was a very interesting coincidence that that happened. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, scientists are always wanting to sort of reduce the mind to all these concepts of neurological functioning, but that's an awfully... Well, of course, it's, it's typical of science, sort of a materialistic perspective. Well, where do you see the common ground sort of connecting mind and matter? Um, I, I think that there's no doubt that our brains are a huge central processor. I think the issue which would settle it, which is extraordinarily impossible at the moment to decide, is whether in any way we survive the transition between life and death. And I think, therefore that looking at psychic interactions between dead people and living people is very interesting in that way, and it's an extraordinarily difficult area to research. I think that maybe there's part of us which exists in other dimensions, which is our quote-unquote mind, but on the other hand, it raises a very important question, which is if our brain is our central computer, what is the, what is the characteristics of mind when that central computer is no longer available? Is there, are we able to be cognitive, or do we simply merge into some giant supermind, which we've always termed God or, or the universe or whatever? And I, as a philosopher, I became accustomed to the fact that you can't decide these things until our culture advances to the point where we're actually able to start to cash this out in scientific terms. You know, what I find so fascinating about the work that we're doing with neurofeedback now is that it's taking us, it has taken us, um, and how we got there is a whole other subject for discussion. I know I have my theories on that, but, but it's taken us into these, what we're now calling infralow frequencies. And it seems that there's so much that's fundamental to the nature of consciousness seems to, you know, it, exist there. I think that's really true, and I also think that the infralow stuff is very important because we may be addressing the glial system in the brain. And the glial system has been much neglected until the last 20 years. And now we're realizing that the glia actually very powerfully modulate the, the effect, the activities of the neurons. And I think that that's why the infralow frequency stuff is so powerful, although there's a lot of the neurofeedback community who are still in, in shock about that because yeah. they think it's treason. <laughs> to deal with these very low frequencies. But what I would point out is that, the, that Niels Bierbaumer's work in looking at what's called the slow cortical potential is exactly what the Osmers are really doing, except they're doing it with groovier equipment.
Right. <laughs> Much groovier equipment. Well, Julian, this has been a completely fascinating discussion and one I'm sure we could keep up all day, and I wish we could. Unfortunately for now, we've really run out of time, though. Um, really well, looking... Thank you so much, Nora. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. You always ask me such interesting questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not hard to do with you talking. Um, I'm really also looking forward to having you back uh, in a few, just a few weeks here to talk about the aging brain. So as for what we've talked about today, though, where would you be inclined uh, quickly to recommend that people go for more information on the topic? I know I like Elmer and Alice Green's Beyond Biofeedback, that book, and, of course, Anna's, Anna Wise's High Performance Mind uh, as a book, and also if anybody out there uh, can find a copy, a used copy of C. Maxwell Cade's The Awakened Mind, that's... That's quite a uh, find indeed. Yeah, the other one that I would recommend, because this is, again, from a Buddhist point of view, is a book called Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen. Wonderful. Because that's the collaboration of a neurologist with a psychologist looking at Buddhism, and they're both long-term deep meditators. And that's a very fascinating book with a lot of practical things that one can do to enhance one's life built into the book. Perfect. Well, thanks, Julian, for being with us today and sharing your wealth of knowledge on this riveting topic. Uh, I really look forward to your being with us again soon. And Me too. For, I'm sorry? Me too. Oh, yeah. Always absolutely. a pleasure to work with you. Yeah. Yes. And, and for all the rest of you out there, please tune in next week to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio when we welcome back Colleen Dunseth, the Educational Director for the Nutritional Therapy Association. We're going to be talking about type 1 diabetes and how certain nutritional principles and strategies can make a major, I mean major difference in how one actually manages this disease. It may not be what you think you know. Well, until then, remember, if it wouldn't look like food to someone wandering around 40,000 years ago with a loincloth and a spear, it's not food for you now either. I'm Nora Gadgaudis, and you've been listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, and please Come visit us again next week. Thank you for listening. See I would like to thank my sponsors, the EEG Institute, offering the most trusted and respected source of information and training for neurofeedback, truly world leaders in the field. You can reach the EEG Institute at www.eeginfo.com or at 818-456-5965. I would also like to thank the Nutritional Therapy Association, the NTA, for their generous sponsorship. The NTA is the best, most trustworthy and reliable source of foundational nutritional education and nutritional therapist training here in the U.S. and possibly the known universe. I just can't say enough good things about this organization. You can find the Nutritional Therapy Association at www.nutritionaltherapy.com or you can call one 800 918-9798. That's 1-800-918-9798. Tell Marcy Nora sent you. Thanks, too, to Biotics Northwest, the source for exceptional healthcare practitioner quality supplements for every health professional. You can reach them at www.bioticsnorthwest.com or at 1-800-636-6913. Also, be sure to visit my website at www.primalbody-primalmind.com where you can also get my book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Empower Your Health, Your Total Health, The Way Evolution Intended and Didn't.
Thanks again for listening to Primal Body, Primal Mind Radio, hosted by Nora Gedgaudis. Come back for another great program next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And have a great week.